Hey everyone, this is Nathan. We're out on the road the next couple of weeks. Actually, it's probably a lot more time in the air than on the road. But we'll be in Madrid teaching an online fundraising workshop. Then we're heading over to London to talk about teaching more workshops. And then we'll be prepping for an event that we're hosting with some innovative nonprofit leaders in Cancun in mid-April. So instead of leaving you hanging for a couple of weeks, we've dug up some really cool interviews from a previous podcast that Brady used to host featuring innovative charities that I think will give you some inspiration in your own work as well as give you more new ideas on how to grow generosity. So I hope you enjoy the episodes, and we'll see you with a fresh interview in a couple of weeks. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Hi, FK. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Brady. Great to be here. So you uh, you helped start World Bicycle Relief in 2004 in response to the Indian Ocean tsunami, I believe. It's actually a big part of my own you know personal story, but can you just tell us a little bit more about your founding story and, and why you started this thing? Yeah. Um, so to start with, I've been in the bicycle industry now for about 30 plus years. So during the, uh, right after the Indian Ocean tsunami, our organization, SRAM Corporation, we were kind of looking inside of ourselves, trying to deal with this, this great tragedy that occurred. And we thought, well, maybe we could raise money and send it to the Red Cross, like everyone else, or maybe there was a way that we could create greater impact by using our skill and expertise in the bicycle industry to deliver basic transportation to those people who had suffered so hard and have lost so much could really benefit from the basic transportation, and that's how we got started. Wow. Uh, so, you know, you, you go way back in, in bikes, but I think maybe for some people listening, they're thinking, you know, you've got, um, you know, death and disease and inequality and hunger and, and disasters. Uh, why bikes? Like, what do bikes do? Yeah. It, was, uh, it was really funny right after... You know, because our expertise is in bikes, we look at everything for many things from a transportation standpoint. And our feeling was that these people are, you know, their infrastructure is now gone. They've been displaced a long way from their, their, um, their homes and their workplaces and their schools. So transportation would create a huge impact. So my wife and I called around to many of the leading relief organizations doing work in Sri Lanka, and we proposed to them doing a large-scale bicycle program, connecting men, women, and children you know, back with their daily lives through the power of bicycles. And each one of them in the U.S., each one of the relief organizations in the, in the U.S. said, no, 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 you just send us your money. And we thought, well, that's really, that's really strange. So my wife and I flew to Indonesia and Sri Lanka, and we inter- interviewed relief organizations and communities right there in the hardest hit areas. And we proposed the possibility of doing a large scale bicycle program. Would that impact or speed up your recovery? And the answer was completely on the other side. It was like, you can do a large scale bicycle program. Mm. That would be amazing. Mm. And that was the genesis moving into action of, um, of World Bicycle Relief. And so uh, kind of fast forward to today, take us 
kind of fast forward us where, where you are today in, in the work that you're doing around the world. Yeah, well, it's, um, it was funny when we first uh, did our first program in Sri Lanka, it was about 24,400 bikes. And our plan was, you know, let's apply SRAM's resources, uh, rally the bicycle industry and deliver this, you know, incredible piece of, uh, of aid through the power of the tool, power of the bicycle. And then we would go back to doing what we normally do, you know, design high-performance products for the Olympics, the World Cup races, the Tour de France, the Ironman. But when we had completed the program in Sri Lanka, we had an outside firm come in and measure it. And the results were off the charts in three critical areas. One of them was education, the other one was economic de- development, and the other one was healthcare. And we thought, well, wow, fantastic. Well, we've We've done our job. Its impact was greater than we thought, and now other people can copy us. But one of the relief organizations came to us and said, you know, World Bicycle Relief, the work you did here was incredibly impactful and innovative. But do you realize the same number of people that died in the tsunami die every two weeks in Africa from hunger and preventable disease? Like, you can't stop here. You've got to scale this up in Africa. Well, it kind of wasn't our plan. Our plan was to do it once, show other people the impact, and then right. go back to doing our normal, normal jobs. But you can't actually walk away from a comment like that. So that's how it <laughs> led us to, that's what led us to uh, scaling up in Africa. Wow. I, I didn't know that it was kind of, uh, you know, just try this out and it worked and you were going to, you were going to leave. And then they, they sucked you back in FK. They sucked you back in. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that, that you stuck with it. Um, just before we were chatting about Zambia, that was the place where, um, uh, my first organization was working from, and you just came from yesterday, I think you said, um, but having been in some of these countries, just trying to think about, you know, like my bike or bikes period, they, like they must just break down. How did you go about developing a bike that could, you know, reach the rural areas and, and live on the roads and the, take the wear and tear. Well, uh, Brady, you've been there, you've seen it. So in a way it's, um, you take your knowledge and then the minute you get in the field, you see that that knowledge doesn't super apply anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when we, um, when we were challenged to scale up, uh, we, we said, okay, let's be very specific and scale up in the areas we saw the greatest impact. So we thought we'd choose them one at a time, run a program, measure them carefully, publish the results. So we um, interviewed many people and we chose a large scale healthcare program in Zambia. And Zambia is fantastic. It's a wonderful country. Um, It's central South Africa in the Southern portion of Africa. And it's surrounded by eight neighbors and different levels of decay and has really poor infrastructure. So if we could scale this up in Zambia, it means that we could probably scale it up in many other countries. Mm. So we went to Zambia, and just as you saw up in um, uh, the Indola region, the Copperpell region of Zambia, the roads are terrible, but bikes are a very strong part of their culture. So what we did is we went there, you know, I bought a dozen of each brand of bikes. I put them out in the field, and I observe all the failure modes of the bikes. And you know, each one of these bike companies said, 
our bike is the best. You know, we are the strongest. We have been in this for years. And by God, Brady, after, you know, one to two weeks, things just started breaking off all of these bikes. And, you know, be it the, the pedals would snap off, the brakes would pop like buttons off a shirt <laughs> being ripped. You know, it just, it, would, it just went on and on. And we said, well, there's no way we can successfully run a program using the existing infrastructure uh, of bikes. We had to really work on the entire supply chain leading into Zambia, starting wow. with the design of the bike, the manufacturing of the bike, the shipping of the bike and the parts, the assembly of the bike in the, in the country, you know, supply chain of you know, spare parts and maintenance repair, the whole, the whole thing. And if we did that, then we could run large-scale bicycle programs, measure them, and really test the power of the bicycle. So wow. just, just like everything, it wasn't, it wasn't part of the plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like how, um, you know, obviously impact or like you've mentioned reporting or just putting things out in the field and measuring, like that seems to be a big part of, big part of your story. But in both cases, the other thing I liked about your story is, you know, you did on the ground research, right? You you flew to Sri Lanka and interviewed people and you put bikes out in Zambia. You didn't just show up and be like, well, we make bikes all the time. So here are your bikes, you know, which is a common mistake, especially when it comes to development. So I think your approach has, has been fantastic. Um, I want to jump back a little bit. You, you mentioned um, one of the areas that bikes have had a huge impact is education. And maybe just share the connection there. Like, how do bikes help lead to education? Well, one, one thing that we saw in Sri Lanka, um, about uh, 30% of the bikes we provided in Sri Lanka were to school students who had been uh, um, relocated long, long distances from their schools. Like everyone that used to live on the coast was now 15 kilometers inwards. But the schools were usually within a couple of kilometers of the coast. So now all these students had to figure out how to get from these shanty camps um, all the way back to their school, you know, sometimes 10 to 15 kilometers. And no one had kind of like solved that issue. They were kind of were thinking immediate temporary housing, which turned into housing for a long, long period of time. But the kids had to get back to school. So we saw that those bikes we provided really got kids back into school. You know, attendance was up, performance was up, um, and the whole whole thing began to roll. So when we were testing um, bikes in support of um, students in the rural areas, we really wanted to see, would we see the same impact in Zambia that we saw in Sri Lanka? Mm. How do you... If you connect a rural student to a distant school, will their attendance go up, their performance go up? Will they matriculate more reliably? And can you put a hard number on that? What what is the percentage increase? What is the return on investment? So probably to date, we've done over 100,000 bicycles in multiple countries focused in on connecting rural students to distant schools. And the results are outstanding, and they're consistent from country to country to country. So um, I'm, I'm really encouraged by, um, by those results because you're beginning to see that if you can educate students, particularly girl students, and we're biased to the girl student on this program, yeah, 
great things happen in terms of the health of the family. Um, families are smaller. Kids get married later. Um, their income goes up. The health of their community goes up. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And if we can play an important role, teach other people how to play an important role of that, then we'll really make a difference. And that's what we're striving to do. That's awesome. You know, my, my personal uh, kind of views on development have been uh, jobs and education, you know, things that create jobs can sustain economies and then ways that we can provide education can allow for future generations and future economic growth. But what that's a very, very simplistic view of development. I'm not, you know, the expert. But the thing that I undervalued were things like, well, how do they get to school? <laughs> and like things like clean water if they're sick or if they're spending all their time fetching water. So the fact that transportation is such a barrier to education, which we know is important, you're solving that problem, which is, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. One, one thing we noticed at the beginning, I said, you know, we wanted to focus in on these three critical areas of education, healthcare, and economic development. So we isolated each one of those three, and we ran really specific programs in each one of those and measured the results of the program. As the data started to come out of these, um, uh, of these studies, we began to see that there's actually no way to, uh, to detach them. If mm, you can right. keep a child in school, the economics in the household goes up and the health of the family members go up. If you focus in like what you were doing, focusing in just on educate or just on economic development, the healthcare of the family goes up, and the kids get the kids get to school more reliably. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how intertwined these are, oh, and yeah, really, really interesting. I want to transition a little bit and talk a bit more about your kind of model because one of the unique things about World Bicycle Relief is. Um, you're a charity, you're a nonprofit, but you use like philanthropic capital and you have some social enterprise. Um, can you just kind of talk a little bit more about your model? Yeah. So Brady, I wish I could, I wish I could start by saying this was all part of a great big strategic plan, but really it was from response to, to learnings that occurred along the way. And remember in the beginning, I was talking about the bikes that were currently available in, um, in Zambia and many parts of Africa were, were literally pieces of junk. We call them BSOs, bicycle-shaped objects, <laughs> where they would just fall apart after a short period of time. So we spent a ton of engineering time and uh, resources strengthening the supply chain of bicycles that came into the countries we were working in. And we called them Buffalo bikes. And we, we thought this was, this was great. We finally had a reliable tool that um, would get the work done that needed to get done. So we would run programs with Buffalo bikes. And then we would find wherever we were running these philanthropic programs, community members would come back to us and want to buy the bikes for themselves and their communities. Hmm. So we we hadn't planned on that, but I could totally see it in you know in the rearview mirror that they had never had a choice before. Their choice right. had only been junk. So we we formed a for profit enterprise that could serve those groups, and any profits coming out of that um, out of that company we call it Buffalo Bicycles. What do we call it? Buffalo Bicycles Limited? Um, it's a Mauritius company wholly owned by the not-for-profit company, World Bicycle Relief. And any profits that would trickle back in 
would be sent up into World Bicycle Relief that would then run more philanthropic programs. And some people might say, well, why don't you just sell the bikes at cost and, you know, that will make them cheaper. And our sense was that if we sold them at cost, we would be undermining the economy and the possibility of more bicycles, improved bicycles coming in. And to me, it's more important that we have a, um, a sound economic model of integrity. And we were able to achieve this with Buffalo bikes. So um, probably if we're doing 30,000 uh, not-for-profit bikes this year, we're probably doing about the same number of for-profit bikes through Buffalo bikes. So at the moment, we're about... 50-50, or it might be 30-60, depending on you know, how you look at it. But the beauty there is that not only do individuals come to us and purchase bikes, but also large organizations like, um, like UNICEF or corporations that want to run philanthropic programs will come and hire us to do that. So those would be uh, programs we, we run through Buffalo Bikes, usually in support of our philanthropic programs or programs just going into, for example, the dairy sector. The dairy sector in rural areas needs transportation. And when you inject transportation in the form of a bicycle, farmers get more milk to the co-ops. The co-ops are able to sell more milk to Parmalat, let's say. Mm. And the whole chain makes money along the way. That's the way it's supposed to work. We can only do so much philanthropically, but if you can create an economic engine, huge, huge change can occur. Yeah. Well, what what's so neat about that, again, is that, you know, your uh, adaptiveness to this wasn't necessarily the plan, but here's an opportunity, which I think is great and shows, obviously, you know, vision and entrepreneurial skills. But I think one of the roles that philanthropy should play is basically what, what you did is it's it's the risky proving ground of can we make this work? Like, I think that's how philanthropic capital should be used. And then once something's kind of proven, like, hey, we might be onto something, then how can something like industry and business come in and scale and sustain it, which is seemingly what's kind of going on. So that's amazing to see that that could actually work. <laughs> yeah, I love I love the way you put it. I, if someone said, FK, what's your five-year plan? I go, well, in five years, I hope to be doing a million bikes a year 80% of them should be for-profit and 20% should be not-for-profit. And the not-for-profit ones should be running the risky, risky programs mm-hmm. generating tons of data that then feed into other programs. Yeah. If we can do that. We will be driving not just our million bikes into the market, but we'll be driving tens of millions of quality bikes designed to serve the end user's needs. And that's when we make a dent in transportation. Mm, that's awesome. Um, what, maybe what were some of the challenges uh, kind of getting this hybrid model off? Or do you have any advice or suggestions for someone who's maybe thinking about pursuing a similar-ish model? Um, well, to, the, to the first one, the, the challenge is, you know, I, I think um, out on the ground, on the ground in the field, one of our biggest challenges is that the people we work with, the people we serve are at the bottom of the economic pyramid and they have been duped so often by so much junk flowing into their, into their lives. Mm. 
when they find that they have a choice, they kind of don't believe it. So, you know, if if uh, if a bike or any tool comes into the market, all the producers are doing is trying to make it look like a tool that normally works, but much cheaper. <laughs> so, of course, now they've reduced the price so that it no longer serves the end user's needs. So that's what that's what our market is accustomed to getting getting lied to and duped. So the interesting part of our model is that when we run a philanthropic program, it kind of demonstrates to the field that a strong, reliable bike is available to them. And even though our bikes cost two times as much as the bicycle-shaped objects, the BSOs, people see that they work and that that's what, you know, if, if they could buy a bike, if they could buy a Buffalo they, but that buffalo would last for years, whereas the bicycle-shaped object, they would have to buy three or four times during the course of a year. So our, our biggest challenge is really convincing people that, you know, now you have a choice. If you want to buy a BSO, you can, but now you have a choice to buy a quality piece of equipment that will okay. serve you for a long, long time. But the second part of your, your question, you know, is... is um, is there examples here that other people can follow? You know, I, I think if individuals in business looked at their skills, they would be shocked at how transferable they are to the bottom of the market if they take their 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 own selves and put themselves in the bottom of the market. Mm. And I think about people in, you know, doctors is obvious, you know, pharmacists is obvious. But, you know, if you drill oil, you probably know how to drill a water well. And, you know, there's so many skills that can be taken and put into the bottom of the market that help people. And if you can lead off philanthropically, and just as you say, you know, let's, let's take the risk philanthropically, but develop a business model behind it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where we can make, make a real difference. And I think that's the difference between what philanthropy used to look like 50 years ago versus what the emerging philanthropy can look like. You know, this, this hybrid of, of philanthropic and for-profit. But even do your philanthropic programs with a business mind. It's got to be data-driven. It's got to be measurable. You know, it's got to be actionable. And really good things can happen. Well, it's, it's very uh, inspiring to hear uh, kind of your views and vision and what you've done with, with World Bicycle Relief and uh, thanks for your work, and thanks for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Uh, where where can people find out more about you and World Bicycle Relief? Um, uh, WorldBicycleRelief.org uh, is a uh, great source of information. Um, I don't know how I, our guys build such beautiful content, but we're very content-rich. Um, we're low on fluff, high on content, and... Um, uh, we respond to questions and uh, we encourage interaction and uh, ideas and challenges. So uh, please reach out. I can be reached through that uh, through that website as well as as well as uh, our our top people in the organization. And I will just uh, ver- validate the uh, the great content that you guys produce over there, and everyone should check you out. World Bicycle Relief. Thanks again, FK. Appreciate it, Randy. Thanks a bunch.
Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It, Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kuchuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>